Johnny was a very bright uh, five-year-old. He told his dad that he'd like to have a, a baby brother. And along with his request, he offered to do whatever he could do to help. Well, his dad, being a very wise and bright 35-year-old, he paused for a moment, then he replied, I'll tell you what, Johnny, if you pray every day for two months for baby brother, I guarantee that God is going to give you one. Well, Johnny responded very eagerly to his dad's challenge, and he was very faithful. He went to the bedroom each and every night for the first week, and he started praying for a baby brother. And he prayed, and he got down on his knees, and he asked a simple prayer of faith, God, would you bless me with someone to play with? Well, this went on for a whole month, but around that time, he started to get a little skeptical. So he started checking around the neighborhood to see if any sort of prayer request like that had ever been answered before. And from his uh, little survey, he found out that nothing like that had ever happened in his entire neighborhood. You don't just pray for two months and whammo, a new baby brother. So Johnny quit praying. Another one month went by and Johnny's mother went to the hospital and came back and she had a little bundle of joy. As he cautiously walked into the room, not expecting to find anything, there was, in fact, a little baby wrapped up in his mother's arms. Well, his dad pulled black a blanket and there was not one baby brother, but two Johnny had twin brothers. Johnny's dad looked at him and said, now aren't you glad you prayed? He said, well, he hesitated a little bit and looked up at his dad and said, the truth is I stopped praying after a month. Aren't you glad that I stopped praying, dad? (laughs) We are once again in Matthew chapter 6. We are looking at spiritual disciplines, the theme set forth. This year is that we would grow in maturity, piggybacking off of Brother Curtis's last sermon in December. I believe the Lord has led me to um, navigate us through some of the easy things of our faith, that we would grow in knowledge and in stature as Jesus did with men and with God, that we would be mature before Him. And so we've started this year out. We've had a couple interruptions, Sanctity of Life, last week. But looking in Matthew chapter 6, there are three things in which Jesus expects for each and every one of His followers to be doing. We read in verse 1, He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Your version may be a little bit different, but the context in the original is clear. If you do any spiritual disciplines with the motive of of recognition, God does not even see that act that you're doing. When you fast, don't do it for man's recognition. When you give, don't do it for man's recognition. We're looking at the third one this morning When you pray, do not do it for man's attention. We pick up, that's the header of this, these 18 verses or so of chapter 6. We pick up in verse 5 with prayer. Jesus teaches, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. 
But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What is the very first thing that these verses teach us? When you pray. A very simple implication that we all ought to be praying. We are expected by our Savior that we will be praying. Every single believer, every single disciple, follower of Christ, when you pray. The instructions of Jesus are not if you pray or whenever you feel like praying or when you gather together as you pray or as often as you pray or when you remember to pray. He says when you pray. Simple. In other words, this is clear and in clearly expected of his disciples to be a regular act according to verse 1, of righteousness or spiritual devotion. How often should we pray? He just says, when you pray. Well, the Apostle Paul does shed some light on that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How often does he tell us that we ought to pray? Pray without ceasing. See, it's a sort of a trick question because if you have any sort of amount of time in your mind is the answer. How much should you pray? Oh, one hour, 30 minutes, tithe your prayer, right? You've heard that before. I'm going to tithe my time and, and spend, you know, the first two and a half hours of my day every day to pray. If you have any sort of segment of time, or this is how much I should do, then really you're not understanding it right, because prayer is not supposed to be something that ends. It's not over at 6.30 p.m., it's not over when you fall asleep. Prayer is not over when the church service lets out. It's not over when the preacher says amen. Prayer should never end. We are to be unceasing and persistent in prayer. I wonder if you've ever stopped praying. Is your prayer mode on idle? Perhaps you've ignored the call to pray always, to pray continually? Have you parted ways from the Spirit for a few moments? Oh, I'm just going to put this on pause. It's interesting. I've talked about this in the past as I've taught on prayer. You can get up front and you can share and say, let's pray, and everyone will bow their heads. And you can do a test like this sometime in your own household. If you don't say amen, Sometimes people are kind of looking around and a little confused. It's a, amen has become a signal word for us. The prayer time is over, right? Amen. But that's not what it's supposed to be. Amen is so be it. Let it be. We agree. We are to continually continue on in prayer. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is oh so weak. How many of you know that you can pray while you're sitting in service? You can pray right now. Your spirit is alive, and it can navigate you a thousand miles a second while your mind is still cooperating with the things of the natural realm. 
That's the beauty of, for those that have been baptized in the Spirit, that have a gift of speaking in tongues, can, in your prayer language, can just pray out. The Spirit can be praying, making intercession with you. You could be praying, Father God, let me get this revelation. You could be praying that in your spirit while you're still listening. You could pray, speak through the pastor this morning that, that he will give us your words. Oh, Father, bless the person on my right and on, the, on my left, that they would be transformed by the word. Draw people to this church, Lord, that they could hear your truth. Teach me what this verse means. Help me to understand this teaching. Let me stay awake this morning. Thank you for this church. Bless the pastor. Bless the worship team. You can do all of that in your mind, in your spirit, while I'm preaching. Not distractingly, not bringing attention to yourself. Do you know, you can even pray in the middle of worship. You can even get up out of your seat or standing preferred spot. You can go lay hands on someone and Curtis won't even miss a beat. I promise you he won't. If he misses a beat, it's for another reason. It's because I'm playing drums. <laughs> you can go lay hands on someone in the middle of worship and say, Oh God, would you just touch Linda? Let her feel the touch of your embrace. Let her feel your love and your joy. You can go right in the middle of service and, and, and just pray on Wade. and Put your hands on him and say, God, would you just pour out your healing power? Would you just strengthen Pierce this morning? Would you just encourage Steve? Let him feel your love. Oh, that we would be a church, a body of believers that would be stirred and committed to prayer. I really want to release you all to do that. I want to release you to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, to what he's asking you. Time of worship, we come together, our focus should be on God the Father, as it always is. But the time of worship is not exclusively a time of worship. May we encourage each other. Don't do it distractingly. Don't go over there and gossip and tell the greatest news that you have or tell this big, long, extravagant you know, prayer request and you're talking, everyone's looking at you. No, we're not going to do all that. But as the Holy Spirit leads you, say, you know what? I just feel like the Lord has put Julie on my heart. You know, you can even come up here on stage in the middle of singing and put your hand on her, non-distractingly, and just lay hands on her. I want us to be freed up as a people to pray for each other. I promise you it will bless them how many of you have ever been prayed for by someone randomly and it blessed you? How many of you have ever been prayed for by someone that you didn't know and it really upset you? Anyone? Oh man, that was so, that was so bad. I just, I got upset. I walked away feeling terrible about myself. Never, right? The same feeling that you have when someone lays hands on you, you can impart that to another person. Be freed up, church. Colossians 4.2, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves. You know what I like about this? Everyone is included in this exhortation. How often we sort of look at somebody in some so-called prayer ministry and we shrug off the responsibility because we say, oh, well, they just have a gift of the Holy Spirit. They just, you know, the Lord just supernaturally gifted them with a, a heart for intercession or, or whatever. But you aren't going to find any prayerists or prayerers listed among anywhere in the Bible, you know, among pastors and evangelists and prophets and apostles. Don't make a mistake. Prayer ministry is a real thing, and it's a blessing. 
it's an incredibly important thing. I certainly believe, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, that, that there are individuals graced with a certain heart for that area of ministry. Certain individuals, as I've said before, may find it much easier to pray hours upon hours on end. They just do. But that does not excuse you from the responsibility in the spiritual discipline of prayer. Some people might find it easier to teach than others. Some people, you give them a microphone and they just clam up. They can't even say their own name. Hi, my, my name, name is... Right? We all have a responsibility, nonetheless, to go and preach the gospel. How many of you ever thought of that? Oh, I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good speaker. So what? Jesus said, go, do it. I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to put them in. I'm going to give you supernatural faith and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have showed you and taught you. And I'm going to recall the things to your mind that you ought to say in that very moment, in that very need. That's what his word promises us. And so in this, much in the same way that we ought to have the boldness to share by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we also have to understand that even though someone has this, uh, what seems to be or appears to be a gift of prayer, does not excuse you from that responsibility, just because they find it easier. The Bible nowhere speaks of a simple gift of prayer or of intercession or of fasting, for that matter. Oh, that person has a gift of fasting. No, they're just doing a spiritual discipline. They're expected to be done by each and every believer whether or not you have some so-called gift or not. Devote yourselves to prayer. You got nothing to do? Guess what? Devote yourselves to prayer. You sit on the couch and you watch too much TV? Devote yourselves to prayer. Do you have a long commute? Devote yourselves to prayer. Julie, you got a short commute? <laughs> Are you stressed? You feeling anxious, worried? Devote yourselves to prayer. You have problems at home? Devote yourselves to prayer. Is everything going right? Just peachy. We're feeling great. Devote yourselves to prayer. See how this works? Do you have children? Devote yourselves to prayer. Grandchildren, devote yourselves to prayer. Do you live and move and have your being? Anyone? Yeah, amen? Devote yourselves to prayer. It's such a simple phrase with a profound implication that there is value in prayer. Why would we be instructed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to devote ourselves to something if it did not have value, right? And so here the instruction is, don't just pray a little bit when you feel like it. Put your whole effort and being into this because there's value in it. Devote your livelihood to it. It's going to move mountains. I don't know if you've ever become discouraged, something you've been praying for. See, Paul, he tells us, he wouldn't have told us to devote ourselves to prayer if it didn't matter. If prayer didn't make a difference. James 5.16, and out of the Amplified Translation, says this, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man 
makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Prayer can move mountains. The problem is that mountains are heavy, aren't they? And so sometimes we have to be extra persistent in our prayer. I hope you're getting it. Diligent and fervent in a particular request. Our Lord taught on this. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, you may or may not remember this parable. I've referenced it several times looking back over my past sermon notes, but I've never actually taken the time to have you all turn there. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. We're talking about being devoted in prayer, persistent in prayer, diligent in prayer. And Jesus was telling them a parable to show them at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. How often? At all times. You ought to pray about everything. And another way you can read that is that at all times when you're praying, don't lose heart. Never get despaired in your own prayers. I don't know if that speaks to you or not, but I know there have been times in my life, I'll confess, that I've been praying for something and I have not seen the results the way that I thought I want, the way that I wanted them. And you give up, don't you? You get a little discouraged, you get a little weary in your prayer time. Say, oh, how many times am I going to have to ask for this? Is God even listening? Jesus spoke directly to that, says, at all times, Pray and don't lose heart, saying, verse 2, here's the parable. In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. God bless those prayer warriors. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. He's comparing, he's contrasting himself. God is juxtaposing himself from this unrighteous judge. He's saying, if an unrighteous person is going to answer the prayer from someone because she's begging, how much more do you think me being perfectly understanding good from evil, being perfectly holy and righteous, is not going to give you the things that you need? He's not saying that begging, beg me as much as you want and it's going to wear me out. God's not tired of hearing your voice. I promise you that. But sometimes there are mountains that are so big and heavy that he wants to see if we're really in it. That we have to be persistent, and it's that level of persistence which is attached to our faith, which is ultimately tied into that prayer that's going to make that mountain move. What's the purpose of this parable? First one, that we ought pray at all times and not lose heart. Is there something 
that you have prayed for many times and you have not seen the result? Is there someone that you have prayed for and they have not yet been healed? Are you having trouble breaking an addiction or a habit? Pray and don't lose heart. Jesus was challenging us to shape our devotion and our determination not on the perception, not on the circumstances. In other words, the result is going to come about from Him because of our determination. It's praying based on a future result, not on what we see. Belief that God is going to give me what I need. In other words, we could say that persistence in prayer is an outward evidence of our faith that God is going to act on our behalf. And that's a different way of looking at prayer. It's not just bringing our requests before Him. It's as we're praying, what we're doing is vocalizing our belief audibly that we are, we are partnering with what God has already predestined to occur. It's saying, God, I know that you have already done this. You have unlocked this for me. Let me get in line with that thing that has already occurred, so I'm going to speak it into existence. And so you partner, in a sense, with, with the unseen reality by saying, God, let me have a taste of what you have done. We know that healing's already been done. God, let's just start, we'll, we'll take the easy one, because we got tons of scripture to back it up. So we pray for healing. We know that Jesus has already paid for it. He bore it on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so what we're doing is we're speaking and saying, God, would you allow that thing to manifest itself in the natural realm that you have already purchased and paid for 2,000 years ago? We need to look not at the natural realm for whether prayer is working or not, but we need to get our minds in line with the reality of the spiritual realm. The Amplified Bible translates Matthew chapter 7, 7 and 8 this way. It says, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking reverently and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives. And he who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, the door will be opened. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. Oh, that our mind would be in line with what his word says. That we would continue to pray instead of giving up. That as we press into asking for that thing again, we prove that we believe his word. Sometimes you have to stir up your own faith and say, God, help me in my unbelief. I know what your word says is true, but I'm having a hard time digesting it. And so God, I'm going to speak this out, not only because I'm asking you, but that you would have, let me have a taste of your word, that I would come to see it as a reality and truth. And so we ask again. And that increases your faith as you do that. Say, God, help me to get in line with what you have already declared to be done. And as you speak it out, you begin to believe it. God, I know I haven't seen the answer yet, but I would ask that you would help me in my waiting to trust in you. 
The next thing you know, a week later, a month later, a year later, I don't know, you start to believe it. You say, ah, that's not what his word says. You've conditioned yourself to, to real faith and belief because you have said it or quoted it so many times or prayed it so many times. You've got to start somewhere. Say, God, help me in my moment. That's a great prayer to pray at the beginning if you need to. So we press into asking for that thing again. We prove that we are trusting in God's word. Look at the end of verse 8. This is what faith is. We're, we're talking about growing and maturing. Sometimes we have to increase our faith by just speaking out the things that we don't see. However, when the Son of Man comes, this is the second half of verse 8, will he find faith on the earth? If I were just to read the context of verses 1 through 8a again, the first few verses, we're talking about persistence in prayer and and someone just, it's a parable. Keep in mind, this is a parable. Jesus is teaching for, for something. A little bit cryptic. And he's saying, I want you to be persistent in prayer. Isn't that what everyone would get out of this? And it's almost like a total change. And the very last verse says, but when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? What does faith have to do with persistence? Everything. Everything it does. That's what he's saying. Make sure you connect the pieces. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When you pray, how often are we to pray without ceasing? If you need some clear instruction, just go on ahead and devote yourselves to prayer. Be persistent in prayer. Pray always. You see, the thing is, if prayer isn't supposed to end, then it really only must have one beginning. That is, for the believer, because we ought to be praying at all times in the Spirit, that when we get saved and we're raised to new life and we become a new creation, all that, our living should really be of constant prayer. Every breath is a prayer. Every word is a prayer. Every thought is a prayer. Constant and perpetual communication in the Spirit with the Father. Lord, thank you that I'm alive. Lord, thank you that I have the opportunity to share this. Thank you that I'm here. Thank you that people are here this morning. Lord, we pray that they would hear your word. And so you, you can think all these things and you can pray. Sometimes your spirit takes over and you're praying and you don't even know, fully understand what you're praying, what the spirit's praying through you. But to be constantly praying, that is the goal. And that is only possible by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Back to Matthew 6, it says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Like whom? The hypocrites. Hard to imagine, isn't it? that one of the big problems with the religious leaders then is still an issue today. Hypocrisy. Even if the perception of the world is plainly wrong that we just aren't that hypocritical. And even though it may seem unfair that others don't extend to us the same level of grace that they extend to themselves, I believe there's a lesson here for us. I know the, most of the world accuses the church of being hypocrites, you see, the people of Jesus' day, they looked to the Pharisees and how they could relate to God and understand his word. That's essentially what the teachers of the law were. But I reckon that we Christians fit that bill today, that people, even though they may not like us, even though they may have problems with us, in some base level, they look to believers in how to relate to God or to understand. I'll prove it to you. 
and I've, I've shared this before, when the massacre at April, or on April 16th happened here at Virginia Tech, people, for a short period of time, were very interested in what you, had, what you were selling. 9-11, how many of you remember what happened with churches the weeks after? People immediately were seeking answers to life's tough questions. So they may not respect you by their actions, by their words, but when it really, you boil it down to it, they know where to turn. And so truthfully, even though we're not always held in high esteem as believers, there are moments when non-believers look to us in how to connect to God. Well, what did the hypocrites of Jesus' day do? Well, they would stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they might be noticed by men. I wonder if you have ever touted your faith with selfish motives. Hear me out. I think there's a, re there's a real danger here. I'm not saying it's wrong to have Christian bumper stickers or Jesus t-shirts or whatever. But I just wonder if our hearts are always as pure as we think they are. Remember, the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. So I think it's a fair to at least acknowledge a paradox that there, this can be a challenge at, at times. Because on one hand, the world needs to know who God is, and we have this responsibility to let our light shine before men, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. But how do we do that the right way? Because we also don't want them to see the good works if our motives are wrong. So we, we, we have a responsibility to do this in a right and healthy way, by showing our good works, but we have to have pure motives. How do we do it? Well, put your money where your mouth is. The things that you speak out, the things that God's Word speaks out that Christians ought to be doing, do those things. And I would almost argue, better yet than putting your money where your mouth is, is put your money, and probably most of the time, leave your mouth shut. In other words, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying don't share, don't speak, but the emphasis should never be look at me, listen to me. The emphasis rather should be look toward Christ. Instead of, instead of talking about all the things that you're going to do and then doing them, you just do them and you let them see Christ in you. Instead of announcing that you're a Christian, again, I'm not saying it's wrong, go scrape all the bumper stickers off. No, I got some Tridestone stickers I'd like to slap on the back of your cars. Instead of talking about being a Christian all the time, announcing, guess what, I started CrossFit, hey, I'm a vegan now, you know the jokes, right? Everyone, you can't walk into a room without hearing somebody started CrossFit or they've gone vegetarian or whatever their new diet is. Everyone likes to announce these things. Instead of being like that in Christianity, just show them what it means to be one. Do you know, it's more effective to reveal Christ than to announce that you're a Christian I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. That's the point that Jesus is getting to, the religious leaders. He's saying, don't just go around announcing that you're a Christian all the time. You're not giving them any substance. So I know it's a bit of a stretch, but I just want us to consider whether or not our motives are always right in that. Just search out your heart.
modern-day Pharisees. Sometimes we act subconsciously in arrogance, knowing that we are secure in Christ. Here's an example. Have you ever been so disgusted by a news story that you said in your heart, I'm glad I'm not like them? I'm glad I know what I know. Maybe it's even more subtle. Lord, thank you for this family that I was born into. I pray that all the time, and I mean it. I believe my heart's right. I'm not saying that every time you pray that it's wrong. But I wonder if you've ever thought something like, you know, sinners are just going to sin, or this is expected behavior, and we just kind of have this subconscious way we look down on others for the way that they act or the things that they say. Now, I know that you would never do that. You would never look down on anyone. The problem is, really, though, when we think we're doing better than them. Say, well, I'm in Christ. And and it happens, we need to be really careful, it happens really subconsciously. But the flip side of that is that we think we have something special because we know Jesus, because we know better. And and I'm not sure that the reality of this problem, in case it's not resonating, let me just read what Jesus has to say about it. If you're still in Luke 18, it's starting in verse 9. Jesus tells them this parable and said to them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know if you're getting it, but when it comes to prayer and spiritual maturity in general, our approach should be grounded in humility. Instead of coming to God with all of your great accomplishments, you get on your knees and you thank him for all that he has done. It's not about what you've done, but about what he's done. It must be for his glory. Jesus said in John 14, 3, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, your prayer request must be on the basis of glorifying Jesus. Oh, how selfish we are in our prayers. So arrogantly pleading before the creator of the world for the things that we need realities than things that we want, the things that we often see. By the way, God, did you notice that so-and-so is sick? You really need to heal them. As if God wasn't aware, right? God, I'm just here to remind you, do you know my dad has COVID right now? (laughs) Don't forget, God. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's totally selfish to want everyone healed. I wish, you know, even the world comes up with that idea. So what would you do with one wish? I'd cure cancer, right? So even people outside of Christ, you could have this desire for healing and health over people. That's not selfish in and of itself a wrong thing. But I want us to, to really challenge ourselves in our thinking about why we're asking for the things. Are we really doing it for the glory of Jesus, or are we doing it because we don't want that person suffering? Sometimes they're related. 
but I want us to dig into that. When you ask for forgiveness of sin, well, God, please forgive me. Not because I know I deserve hell, but because I want to feel better about myself. Isn't that what it is oftentimes? We have a conviction and we don't like the feeling, do we? Well, that's not wrong. That's the Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin, that you would come before him and be holy and blameless. Obviously, that's a right thing. But your motivation shouldn't just be that you would feel better. Your motivation is so that Jesus would receive glory for the work that he did on the cross. It's very subtle, but I want us to dig into that. Oh, Father, please help me earn a little bit of money because I know how much money I need better than you do. But isn't that what our often our prayer is? It's, it's grounded in this false perception of, I think I know better than God. Listen, church, I know we are all thinking that we don't do that. Our motives are pure, but I want us to be honest with ourselves. Do you really ask for what you ask for, for his glory? Or is it possible that sometimes you pray to satisfy your own selfish desires? Get in the spirit. Get behind his will. Pray what he prays, for apart from him, you can do Nothing. Back to Matthew chapter 6. What do those that pray with wrong motives receive back? Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Those that pray or give or fast for the attention of others get nothing from God. Their prayers amount to nothing. They don't even bring glory to Christ. And so Jesus goes on, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What does that entail? Do we literally have to pray in a closet? Is it wrong to pray in public? No. I said in regards to giving two weeks ago, the concern is the motive behind it. Prayer is communication between you and the Father. Your motivation should not be to be known as a praying person. I'm going to say that again so it's clear. Your motivation should not be to be known as a praying person. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's not wrong to be known as a praying person, a giving person, a fasting person. But if that's your motivation behind your prayers, then you have your reward in full. One more tidbit of instruction, Matthew 6. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. What is so bad about repetition? Well, first of all, be clear here. Let's be clear here. The, the word is about meaningless repetition. It's not all repetition in prayer that is here condemned. Jesus himself went back and prayed the same words, Matthew 26, 44, three times praying the very same thing. You can look it up yourself in your own time. The word here is about vain stammering, batalogosete in Greek. It's about... A, it's a capital name, battle, of someone of, who would, uh, was a stammerer. It was a, you can read about it in Greek literature, but someone, it's tacked onto his name as a vain stammerer. It was kind of a, a mean nickname that you could give to someone. This act of superstitiously rehearsing words with no real reverence to their meaning, that's what Jesus is condemning that we would recite something so many times it becomes rote. Matthew Henry said this, Lip labor in prayer, though ever so well labored, if that be all, 
is but lost labor. Ironically, wouldn't you know what ends up being probably the most vainly repeated prayer out of them all? The very antidote that Jesus himself gave us, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. So he's just finished saying, don't do these things in prayer. Verse 9, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven. Is it wrong to recite that? Of course not. But I wonder even if in repeating it, we have lost all sense of what he was trying to teach. Context is about bringing attention to yourself, praying long prayers to garner you better the things that you ask from God. Do not suppose, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Do you know that the prayer, God help me, if it's sincere and humble, goes further in the kingdom than a recitation of the most extravagant words strung together by man? God help. And this should be comforting to you in case you're not a great orator or you're not knowledgeable in scriptures or you're shy and simple and you don't know what to pray. It's about the matter of your heart and that's what he looks at. It saddens me when people say they don't want to pray. Sometimes you're in a position as a pastor to call on someone and say, I'd rather not or I'm not comfortable or, you know, they're baby Christian. You can kind of excuse it, but we ought to be, that's the whole point of this, growing and maturing in our faith and be comfortable with praying. And I want, to, I want each and every one of you to be challenged and encouraged that it's not about the words you pray, it's about your heart behind it. You might stumble and get through it. It might be the most beautiful thing that touches the ears of the Father. Why? Because it's on the basis of Christ's shed blood, not on the basis of some flowery language that you can string together. When you pray, how often do you pray? Pray without ceasing. Be persistent in prayer. Let us consider the example of Christ Jesus. How many times he went off into the wilderness to pray. He went away. He would slip away. He would go off to pray. He went up the mountain to pray. He withdrew and began to pray. Hear me out. I'm not against corporate public prayer. I wish that you would all come Wednesday evenings to pray with the four of us here. But it would be good for us to recognize that Jesus withdrew for a reason. Whether it was to get away from others, whether it was to get away from distractions, or just to be around the beauty of creation, I want to suggest that we try to incorporate, incorporate solitude into our prayer lives. Luke 5, 16 says that Jesus often withdrew to pray. I wonder when the last time is that you specifically withdrew to pray. It's great to pray in your commute. It's great to pray when we have designated prayer times. Those are wonderful things. But I wonder if you have implemented as a part of your spiritual discipline, God, I'm going to go right now and be alone with you just to pray. If Jesus needed to, how much more do we need to? I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to close out this morning with a couple songs, or at least one, as you feel led, Curtis. I hope that you've been stirred this morning to increase in prayer in your life, whether you hardly remember to stop and thank God for your food or 
whether you pray for hours on end, I think we could all use a reminder from time to time about the importance of prayer. Jesus not only taught his disciples to pray, he prefaced that teaching with when you pray, but he also modeled it for us. And I want to again challenge you this morning that prayer is necessary to our spiritual maturity and our growth. And I hope that we commit to this discipline so that we would grow closer to him and reflect the image of Christ Jesus to the world.